Hello everyone, this is Ryan Tripp. I'm here, New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm here with Julia Nichols. She's lecturer in French and European Studies at King's College London. Earlier this year, she published Revolutionary Thought After the Paris Commune, 1871 to 1885, published again earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So what prompted you to study the intellectual history of ex-communards after 1871? And how do you define revolutionaries? What was your source base for this? So um, this is actually a topic that I've been studying in kind of one form, form or another since I was an undergraduate um, about 10 years ago. Uh, and I'd always been interested in French history. Um, and I remember reading about the Paris Commune, and it's always portrayed as this kind of decisive break in history. And after that, you know, revolutionaries are sort of kind of assumed to have just gone away, like this is seen as the end of the revolutionary tradition. So I started digging around that, and I discovered that that didn't really seem to be the case. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for the book. And actually, that's the central thesis of it as well, that instead of fading into obscurity after 1871, revolutionaries remain quite active. Um, And I suppose the intellectual aspect of it comes into play because I argue that they, they remain kind of relatively successful and relatively active, primarily through redefining traditional revolutionary ideas like liberty and equality with meanings that are more useful in their new circumstances. So the revolutionary movement is quite a a nebulous term, um, and it's quite difficult to define, mainly because it's it's often quite diffuse um, and quite shifting. So the, the definition that I adopted is that revolutionaries are activists that either took part in the commune in 1871, or they expressed strong affinities with it afterwards. So that covers quite a range of actors from Marxists, public service socialists, uh, more traditional Blanquist revolutionaries, as well as more independent theorists and a lot of anonymous pamphleteers as well. Um, And I'd say, I mean, I suppose there's also a question of what separates them from uh, so-called kind of advanced radicals during that period. And I would say what separates them is the the extent of the social changes that they wanted and also the means that they're willing to entertain in order to get those things. So the source base is quite interesting, actually, um, because these people are quite prolific. So theoretically, there should be a lot. But in reality, there's less than you might expect. Um, And this is partly because revolutionaries quite often burned their correspondence after they received it. Um, And it's also partly because uh, it's just a kind of practical thing that a lot of things that were written at the time were printed on quite bad quality paper. um, And the paper has since disintegrated. So actually, one newspaper that I looked at is actually no longer available to view. So uh, to kind of try and make up for these gaps, I cast quite a wide net and the book draws on a range of uh, some previously unstudied and rare primary sources and archival material across Europe. Um, There are two really important source bases. So the first is police reports. Um, 
after the commune revolutionaries in exile are kind of followed. Um, and the agents would send reports back to the police in Paris. And because so much correspondence is destroyed, these are really our only kind of a window into the daily lives of revolutionaries and how ideas are privately discussed and formed. I mean, obviously there are issues with um, trying to determine those things from police reports, but I think that they're still useful. Um, and the second major source base is newspapers, uh, which were really the kind of central point of revolutionary life. Um, and it's in their pages that the ideas are first articulated and debated and formulated. And the book draws on a really wide range of those, um, including titles that were published in Paris and also ones that were published in exile. After 1871, how and why did both hostile and revolutionary accounts of the commune, including public and private views by Karl Marx, consider it a failure? And how did these same authors attempt to define the memory of the commune? I mean, I think that the kind of principal reason that they defined it as a failure or thought of it as a failure is because it it really was a political failure. Um, even the communal can't deny that it is that. Um, it emerged really quickly, and this meant that revolutionaries didn't really have very much time to come up with clear responses to some quite key questions, like who the commune should represent or how it should govern. Um, and also practically most of the people who were participating in it didn't have any experience of government. Uh, and ideologically, they were also divided about what they wanted the commune to be or what they wanted to do with their power. So uh, the council quite quickly divided into factions. And on top of that as well, the commune isn't really welcomed by most citizens in Paris. So these issues are really seized on by opponents of the commune in their writings about it. Um, and there's a, a wide range of hostile accounts which focus on the violence and so on to portray communards as dangerous rioters who pose a kind of an existential threat to society. Um, the historian Hippolyte calls them savage wolves and brigands. Um, and these argue that the communards should be punished according to the gravity of their crimes. Uh, more moderate Republicans are also opposed to the commune. They want more leniency, but they also think it's a step too far. And surprisingly, or quite surprisingly for me, when I was looking through the sources, is that there's also not that much sympathy on the left for the communard. So um, you can see this in the writings of Marx, as you said. Um, the Civil War in France, which was published in 1871, is kind of considered now as a, a paradigmatic defense of the commune. Um, but he does, while he does publicly defend the event, he's not interested in resuscitating the reputations of the communards themselves. What he wants to suggest is that this represents the end of a certain idea of revolution. Um, and privately, he's even more dismissive. Uh, he thought it would fail since really the first few weeks uh, that it was in government. So although they're all very different, for all of these accounts, uh, the the utility and the kind of defining memory of the commune really lies in its failure. What were realist accounts of the commune? And what were the consequences of their definition of truth as personal experience and the contextualization of the commune in quotidian events? Further, 
what were specific progressive progressive social ideas that these so-called realists touted as potentially significant to later movements? Yeah, so ranged against these interpretations of the commune uh, that we talked about just now, you get broadly two uh, communal or revolutionary accounts of the commune in response. So in the book, I call the first of these the realist account. Um, And the chief advocates of this account are revolutionaries who were in favor of a, a kind of federal socialism. Um, who have been members of the minority faction or been aligned with the minority faction during the commune. And these accounts are really obsessed with detail and they focus on the the practical dimensions of the commune. They did a lot of heavy contextualization, especially at the beginning of the commune, um, putting it back into the context of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, the siege of Paris, and the the political and legal vacuum that kind of ensues during that period. And they also owned up to the organizational flaws that contributed to the commune's defeat. And so I think that this has several aims. The first is to reverse the prevailing narrative of the commune um, in French and international media, which, as I said, portrayed revolutionaries as kind of dangerous criminals and the army as agents of order, of restoring order. Uh, The realist accounts want to show that the commune wasn't an event outside of history. It was actually a reasonable or even an inevitable response to the circumstances that they found themselves in. Um, and as a result of that, that they aren't the animals that they've been portrayed as. And the second aim, I think, is to wrest back control of the commune narrative from Marx. Um, so after the commune falls, the civil war in France uh, really becomes the, the dominant interpretation of those events on the left. Uh, And realist accounts really emphasize the importance of personal experience and eyewitness testimony. And the aim here is to portray their competing accounts as more legitimate than his. And as you said, uh, these accounts also uh, focus on specific progressive ideas uh, that the commune had implemented or incarnated. Um, So I suppose kind of having recovered the commune by recontextualizing it, they can pull out its ideas. They can say, well, actually, there were good parts of what happened. Um, So the commune did, I mean, it only lasted for a couple of months, but it did actually pass progressive legislation. Um, This was mainly on matters like divorce, Um, and on night work, they also tried to separate church and state. Uh, So realist writers really hold these things up as ideas that can inspire future radicals and revolutionaries. Um, And I mean, actually, they they kind of do. If we look forward, these are things that are legislated for again in years to come. Please compare and contrast realist accounts with ex-Communard Blanquist narratives as well as post 
1880 amnesty shifts and additional depictions, which in turn emphasized the violence of the 1871 uh, Semence and criticism of commune opponents, as well as those commemorations, obligatory funerals, and an autonomous identity, all in the context of international solidarity. Yeah, so the other interpretation, um, the second of the two that I mentioned, is what I call the the violent interpretation of the commune. Um, and this really ignores the commune's I, I sorry, this really ignores the commune's ideas. Um and it also ignores the the two month duration of the commune itself. So instead it focuses on the shared experience of violence. Um Particularly, they focus on the cement songlon, uh, or the bloody week, which is the final week of the commune when Paris is reinvaded by the French army and thousands of revolutionaries die. So the aim here is really to turn the commune into a lasting revolutionary symbol rather than something that, you know, had a lot of ideas. They're not so focused on that. This is sort of how we think of the commune now, I think. Um, but actually in the 1870s, it was the, the realist interpretation that was more widespread. And it's only around, as you said, 1880, 1881, that the violent interpretation starts to gain momentum among revolutionaries. So partly, I mean, largely, I think this is because this is when they are amnestied, um, Communal exiles are granted a general amnesty and they're allowed to return to France freely and legally for the first time. Um, And we see a parallel increase in memorialization and commemoration. Uh, It's sort of a a kind of visual version of the violent interpretation. So, for instance, walks to Palachez Cemetery, where the last communal died, and also uh, a commemoration of the wall that they were shot against. Why did this violent interpretation of the commune um, in the 1871 uprising focus on urban areas? And why did the majority uh, Blanquists espouse such an interpretation of shared violent trauma, particularly in the context of their previous advocacy for street uprisings? Well, I think that both interpretations do to a certain extent um, that is focused on urban areas, just because the communes in 1871, so there isn't just the Paris commune, there are several other uprisings as well, although they're not as big. The communes in 1871 all took place in cities. Um, But it's easier for realist writers to claim a broader appeal because, as I said, they largely came from the minority faction in the commune. Uh, which was more federalist, and it advocated for more, as we might say now, devolved government. And the majority faction was more traditional. Um, And traditionally, French revolutionary action has centered on Paris up until this point. So, yeah, as you said, the violent interpretation is mainly upheld by adherence of Louis-Auguste Blanqui, who is uh, a veteran revolutionary by this point. He's been involved in revolutionary action since 1824. Um, And this is partly because they had uh, a theoretically a greater interest in violent insurrection. But I think it's mainly because they had held power during the commune. 
So most of the ruling majority faction were Blancists. So it's, it's difficult for them to celebrate the life of the commune because its failure and all of the things that went wrong during it are kind of a catalogue of their mistakes. Um, whereas the members of the minority can say, oh, well, we were in government, but we weren't really responsible for anything. We didn't really have any power. The Blonquis can't do that. So a focus on violence and all of the bad things that the army did to the commune uh, allows them to sort of elide over those mistakes. Between 1871 and 1885, how and why did ex-communards reconceive of French Revolution ideas of liberty and equality, especially in the context of a broader genealogy of ideas, the Third Republic, and future revolutionary action? Also, how did this reconception diverge from Louis-Auguste Blanquis and Republican authors such as Victor Hugo, who referenced the French Revolution in times of crisis and for patriotic unity? Hmm. So when I was reading uh, a lot of the secondary literature um, around the commune and around also uh, revolutionary activists in the 19th century and towards the end of the 19th century particularly, I noticed that a lot of historians assumed that revolutionaries referred very rever- reverently sorry, to the French Revolution. And they did so to put forward ideas about what they thought revolution should look like. So the assumption is there that for revolutionaries, the French Revolution is a paradigmatic event. But actually, when I looked at the sources, I didn't find any real causal relation between those two things. Um, They mentioned the revolution a lot, but they didn't do so to talk about future revolutions. Um, And that's the same for all different stages of the first French Revolution. Uh, They don't show any more affinity in these terms to the more radical 1793 than they do to 1789, say. And what I think that they were actually doing or argue that they were actually doing was talking about society or more specifically talking about the Republic. So they used a very kind of broad-based French history that lauded the revolution, but also medieval rebels like Etienne Marcel, um, and Spartacus and so on to advance a different and a more socially conscious vision of the Republic and also of Republican values like liberty and equality. And they're saying that in order to have these things, we need to go beyond what's been laid down by the Third Republic, beyond what's been legislated for by the genuinely reforming Republicans that are currently in government in France. Um, They're claiming that political rights aren't enough to guarantee those things. So they're trying to kind of redefine or define their place in French politics by doing that. So actually, I think that the ways in which revolutionaries used the French Revolution isn't all that different to the ways that others had used up until that point. Um, Lots of people in the 19th century 
had used histories of the revolution and of France to advance ideas of ideal societies. And this is sort of what the revolutionaries are doing. And actually, even the way that they used it in this period was quite similar to the way that other Republicans were using it. So if we look at someone like Hugo, he draws on the revolution, as you said, for a kind of patriotic language in times of national crisis, like the Franco-Prussian War, to try to stir the nation to action and to unity. And if we then look at Blanqui's writings from the 1850s to the 1880s, we see that he actually does a very similar thing. And I think this is significant because the commune is often seen as a very uh, decisive break between revolutionaries and more moderate republicans. But what I want to show is that it's it's not as simple as that. Um, and also, I suppose, the fact that they continue to refer to the revolution after 1871, when it really becomes no longer possible to affect a kind of violent revolution in the same way that it had been potentially before. That doesn't mean that they've given up on either revolution or being active in politics. So similarly, between 1871 and 1885, how and why did many free thought ex communards attempt, in quite limited ways, to reconfigure revolution as a variant of social Catholicism, particularly for uh, countryside citizens, citizenry? Also, after the 1880 Elisee Reclut lecture, how did they recast revolution as a Darwinian and positivist long-term natural event? And what were political, conceptual, and everyday consequences thereof? Yeah, so as you outlined, um, I really argue that there are two other definitions of revolution that um, activists during this period call upon. One is revolution as religion. Um, and this isn't just the preserved free thinkers, actually, as is an even wider section of the movement engages in this. After the commune, they start characterizing revolution as a religious experience, um, which is not a kind of unheard of language uh, in French revolutionary and radical circles. Um, and it's part of an attempt to expand their appeal outwards from Paris and from regional cities into the countryside. Um, they realise after the Commune that the fact that no one really outside of cities heeded their call to join the Commune, they realise that this is a, a kind of major stumbling block to affecting the changes that they want. Um, and they perceive the countryside as more religious than the cities. Um, and I think that this definition is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, because revolutionaries themselves during this period are not religious at all. Um, it's quite unlike the 1840s in that way. So their willingness to resurrect this kind of language actually shows how committed they are to getting new support. Um, and it also shows that they continue to believe that revolution could be a viable political program or a viable political position. It's also interesting because the details of their religious language 
at the same time, expose quite fatal limitations to their attempts. So, I mean, really, revolutionaries aren't actually interested in either the countryside or in religion or in finding out any details about them. So they're not really aware of what either is like in real life. Um, And also the quite significant uh, changes in the way that people interacted with their faith that had taken place since the 1850s. Um, So they end up addressing the countryside as a kind of a reactionary religious monolith. And it's quite patronizing. And so they, they kind of, in attempting to appeal to these people, they actually display their inability to overcome their own prejudices. So it's kind of counterproductive. And yeah, the second definition uh, of revolution has to do with nature. Um, And it portrays revolution as a natural process, which is the twin or the flip side of evolution, a kind of faster moment in time, whereas evolution is longer. So they're trying to suggest that uh, revolution is something that's inevitable. It's an inevitable part of society just as it's an inevitable part of nature. Um, And that therefore, on some level, it kind of has to be accepted. So the main proponent of this uh, is an anarchist geographer who's very celebrated as an academic uh, called Elisée Reclus. And he gives a lecture in 1880 on the subject, which turns out to be kind of wildly popular. And this definition is really adopted by lots of different groups of revolutionaries in the ensuing years. And so the aim here is to minimize the importance of their own recent very public failures um, and also to redefine revolution as not a kind of triumph of the will or um, uh, a violent event, but just as the practice of everyday life, that um, it is inevitable. And so we're all taking part in it. And this this kind of broader revolution is more accessible. Um, and they hope that it's more appealing than traditional forms of action, which actually demand quite a lot of sacrifice um, and a lot of discipline. But it also has a downside which is that it it kind of strips revolution of any specific meaning. And I think that often that led to confusion over what actually these revolutionaries stood for or what precisely they stood for. Julie noted. So why did French translations of writings by Karl Marx increase after 1871? And what were the consequences for semantic and ideological shifts in translation? especially for labor agency and technological trajectories in, for example, the factory chapter of the uh, 1872 to 75 Le Capital and its abridgments. Yeah. So as you said, there's a really a kind of uh, boom in translations of Marx into French from around 1872 onwards. Um, And over the next couple of decades, um, many of his writings are translated into French, whereas prior to 1872, there had only been two texts in French. It's kind of difficult to pinpoint exactly why this is, I think. Um, 
it could be for a couple of reasons. So it might be just a result of his work on the commune, uh, which I mentioned before, the civil war in France. Um, and this really increases his visibility in France. So maybe that kind of increased curiosity. Or it might have to do with the fact that more French socialists came into contact with him in this period, uh, mainly through the International Working Men's Association, which he was very uh, active in and which a lot of revolutionaries who had left France after the Commune subsequently joined. It's also worth saying that um, two of Marx's daughters were married to French socialist leaders. And uh, those people, both his daughters and their husbands, were um, quite instrumental in attempting to secure publishers uh, and actually in translating the work themselves into French. I think that the French translations are significant um, because they're not always the same as the originals. Um, And Capital is an especially good example of this, actually. Uh, it's, It's translated into French and serialized and published between 1872 and 1875. Um, And these translations present a a French Marx, or what I call a French Marx, that is subtly but also quite noticeably different from the Marx in the German originals, and also in other versions as well, other translations. Um, And whose ideas are more finely attuned to the French circumstances. So a good example is the chapter on the factory where just a few words are changed uh, or kind of tweaked in the French translation, but they give quite a different, um, they leave quite, the translation leaves quite a different impression. Uh, It leads to a slightly less bleak interpretation of life on the factory floor. Um, and workers' rights inside the factory. Um, In France, industrial labour, especially in big factories, is a lot less common than it is in places like Britain. Um, And workers' bargaining position uh, in relation to their employers is also better. And these ideas are also widely accessible. So the translation of Capital, as you said, was abridged. Um, And it was sold as part of a workers' library series. Uh, It had a long explanatory introduction explaining why, you know, what this text says and why it's important to workers. Um, And I think also, importantly, the construction of this French Marx is overseen and encouraged by Marx himself. Um, And I think this is important because it gives a very different picture of Marx from the one that we have from the First International, where he's he's quite authoritarian. Um, and this has formed the basis for most studies of French Marxism, or this impression. But what looking at the translations does is it shows that he could also be very flexible, um, that in translation he's often willing to sacrifice the purity of his ideas um, if that will mean broadening their appeal. 
So you've already alluded to this, um, but I want you to elaborate a little bit. Um, how did, why did this uh, rigid doctrinaire Karl Marx and his French disseminators, which he spoke of in the context of uh, ex-Communards amidst the uh, anarchist schism of the uh, International Workingmen's Association, how did, they help, how did these disseminators help revise arguments in Les Capital that differed for geographic and temporal reasons from, uh, as you already alluded to, Marx's previous focus on the counterintuitive role of uh, private property held by peasants of labor. And I guess the classic example is like in, in the 18th Brumaire. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that these changes come about mainly um, because he recognizes that different audiences and different circumstances will respond differently to ideas, um, which is quite, um, I mean, actually just a, a basic and a general point. And a good example of this is, uh, small-scale private property, which I think is what you're talking about with 18th Brumaire. Um, so, yeah, in Das Kapital and also, so the German original of Capital, and also in earlier texts on France, like in 18th Brumaire, um, which, by the way, wasn't published in French um, when it was published. He says that um, peasants acquiring property is um, something that is centrally important to historical materialism and to the historical development of capitalism. Um, it helps capitalism to develop um, and it helps the modern state to develop. And as a result, uh, it also visualizes class divisions um, and therefore eventually helps revolution to develop as well. So peasants acquiring property is central to this. But by the 1870s, when he's translating capital into French, it's, it, it's obvious that this hasn't happened in France. Um, you know, the country, as I said, doesn't support the commune. Um, no peasants come out in support of it. Um, and it doesn't really show any sign of happening in the future either. So in the French translation, he this is kind of changed. Um, and private property becomes only the corollary of developing capitalism. So um, it's it's kind of less important to capitalism's development. Um, and this, I think, directly caters to the specific conditions of French industrialization. Um, and it makes his ideas more relevant in those circumstances. So... Actually, what I wanted to show is that in terms of ideas, uh, he's, he's kind of not doctrinaire, really, that, that actually we have to combine the two. Um, so the marks of the international and also the more flexible marks of these translations to understand him and his thought in this period, um, that we have to pay attention to the translations and their dissemination as well as his actions as a political figure. After 1882... How and why did a French Marxist lexicon contribute to the Gettysburg reformulation of the right to work into an obligation, an idea of communes, and the quote-unquote right to be lazy, that is, uh, labor appropriation of industrial machinery? And what about possibilitous accounts of capitalism and non-Marxist political organization, as well as Blanquist and socialist attempts to preserve their revolutionary credentials? Mm. So this this kind of French Marx or the Marx that's articulated in the French translations of his works is uh, taken up and used by various different French socialists um, 
in the 1880s. So the most obvious case is the Gedists. Uh, so these are self-professed French Marxists. Um, they're led by uh, Jules Ged, uh, who gives them the name, uh, and also by Paul Lafargue, who is one of Marx's son in, sons-in-law. Um, and so they kind of build on the less bleak version of the factory to suggest that actually industrialization can be good. Um, that if all machines are owned by the right people, by which they mean by the workers, if the workers own the means of production, then actually we can all cut down on our working hours um, and we can spend time cultivating other interests. And that actually this is the right that socialists should be demanding um, rather than the, the right to work, which had been central to socialist uh, platforms in the rest of the 19th century. And so Paul Lafargue calls this the right to be lazy. Um, but yeah, so, so socialists, other than the French Marxists, also show uh, an affinity for Marx. Um, and this is what I really wanted to show, that Marx isn't just the preserve of the Gedists. So um, they're enemies, uh, I suppose, in kind of political terms, uh, colloquially known as the possibilists. They're more public service-oriented uh, socialists. Um, they're more interested in gradual change or the possibilities of gradual change. Um, and they also admire Marx and they make use of various concepts um, like uh, Marx's increasing affinity for communes, small communes and the revolutionary power of smaller communes. Um, the Blomkists also make use of Marx. Um, so, yeah. Marx is, I mean, and Marx is also kind of consistently evoked provocatively um, by French socialists to kind of maintain their revolutionary credentials. So he's used in almost two different ways. One, um, they draw upon Marx's ideas or the ideas of the French Marx. And two, they also uh, use him as a figurehead. Um, he is a very controversial figure in France at this time. And they kind of lean into that um, in an attempt to maintain their revolutionary credentials. Um, and what I want to suggest is that French socialists saw Marx's ideas as a kind of a useful language. Um, for working through or for discussing important social problems. They didn't see Marx or Marxism as a fixed doctrine um, and that maybe orthodox Marxism doesn't really exist during this period. Beginning in 1872 to 1876, how, did the, how and why did the writings of ex-communard deportees engage with French colonialism, only insofar as it related to a fiscal critique of the periphery. In addition, what examples can you provide of uh, Deporte political re reconciliation and communal reformulation of a French republic, and I guess republican culture, in New Caledonia, as well as the popularity of such ideas? Yeah, so historians who've uh, kind of looked at Deportes in New Caledonia before, I think have 
often looked for a stance on imperialism in their work. Um, which I suppose makes sense, you know, they, they've been deported to a penal colony and they're supposed to act um, according to the French state or as uh, agents of colonialism. Um, but when I looked, I didn't, I didn't really find one um, in their, their writings. Um, I found that they were more concerned with the French Republic um, and with using their experiences to criticise the established order there, um, and also to legitimize their participation in politics once they got back to France in the 1880s. So economic criticisms of imperialism are a really good example of that, um, because the economy was one of the main justifications that the government gave for empire um, and for imperial expansion. So the deportees are kind of using their experience to say, well, actually, none of these things are true. Um, the government is lying. Um, and because it's lying about this, it is also sort of unfit to rule. Um, so they're using their experiences in the empire to intervene in metropolitan politics. Um, they also use their experiences in New Caledonia positively as well. It's not all just about how how bad everything was there. Um, so they point to things like um, the fraternity that existed there. They say that, you know, all divisions kind of melt away when we get to New Caledonia. Um, and also to the things that they achieved against the odds as well. Um, so, for instance, um, they they engage in various kinds of building projects. Actually, you can you can still see those now in New Caledonia. Some of those now, um, they start newspapers, engage in various cultural projects and things as well. So, they're almost kind of pitting this experience, their experience in New Caledonia, which they see as overcoming the odds to create a functioning society against that of the commune. Um, they're saying, look, actually, we can get along um, and our ideas can work. Uh, we can establish a functioning society and therefore our ideas have value for France as well. And it would be good if France paid attention to those things. Um, and, and these ideas and the deportees themselves turn out to be relatively popular. So if you read the police reports from the early 1880s, um, where most of the deportees returned to France after they've been amnestied, there are several that say uh, deportees returning to France after the amnesty are greeted by cheering crowds who are shouting, Vive la République. Um, and also things like, uh, in 1874, there is a kind of sensational escape from New Caledonia, um, by several deportees. Um, and this is very kind of high profile. It lights up all the newspapers. Um, one of the, the most famous ones, the, the most famous, uh, uh, deportees who escapes, uh, his signature is reprinted on the front of newspapers in the States. Um, but this, uh, 
this escape is is funded by very high profile um, and more moderate Republicans, like actually Victor Hugo um, is one of the people who is kind of involved in this. Beginning in 1882 to 1883, Paris, how and why did ex-communard Prosper Olivier Le Cigare, socialist daily, La Bataille, uh, condemn French colonial governance, yet also uh, La Bataille also expressed theoretical support for French imperialism? Conversely, how and why did the 1877-78 Franco-Russian anarchist newspaper uh, Les Tavreux, published in Geneva, how did it challenge legal justifications for colonialism and imperialism, as well as extol and forge labor solidarity with non-Western cultures, except for uh, a few I read uh, quasi-Lockean uh, land comments? Yeah, so so what I suggest is that actually it was revolutionaries who remained in Europe that um, produced more kind of clearly elaborated theories uh, on empire and on international questions. So the examples I give are of two post-communal newspapers that embody two quite divergent attitudes. So the first, as you said, is La Bataille, which is a Parisian daily, um, daily newspaper that uh, is edited by um, quite a famous revolutionary activist. And imperialism, uh, French imperialism, and also British imperialism as well, um, features in this newspaper quite regularly. Um, and on kind of first look, uh, it it criticizes uh, those things. It criticizes French imperialism quite a lot. But actually, it only really criticizes it for being inefficient. Um, it criticizes French imperialism for not the French for not doing imperialism well enough. Um, and I kind of contrasts it with British imperialism and says, well, you know, the British are much uh, more efficient imperialists than we are. And maybe we should be like that. Um, so it, it accepts the value of imperialism in general. Um, and actually it says that it's necessary in order to guarantee workers' rights and workers' livelihoods in France. Um, and I suppose, I mean, this is an argument that's made uh, by lots of advocates for imperialism in the 19th century and also in the 20th century as well, that the French economy needs those kinds of um, captive, captive markets. So the second newspaper um, is a periodical that's produced, as you said, in Geneva. It's called Le Travailleur. Um, it's published uh, as a kind of joint venture between um, French and also some Russian anarchist exiles. Um, and this is quite unusual in that it rejects imperialism both in practice and in theory. Um, and it does so in favour of a more radical solidarity with colonised subjects. Um, it says that, you know, uh, Western societies are not the only places that um, we can learn from when we're trying to forge uh, a new and a better society. Um, that it's actually in Algeria uh, or in Japan that we will find um, 
kind of social ideals that are very admirable and that we should implement. Um, and they also seek to establish um, a solidarity and a similarity with uh, rebels in other countries as well. So they point to, for example, the similarities between uh, socialists in China um, or rebels in China um, and European socialists. Um, but yeah, as I said, or as you said, sorry, uh, there are limits to this as well. Um, you know, they they do kind of advocate for uh, colonization if it um, will guarantee the proper use of the land, which is a very kind of Lockean definition of it. Um, and they don't really give space in the newspaper to um, writers, any writers from the places that they're talking about. Um, I suppose the reason I think for the differences is partly to do with the circumstances that the newspapers are produced in. Um, but the differences are, are quite striking. Um, and I think they're important as well. Um, they're important because the two different approaches have quite different implications for revolutionaries' wider thought. Um, so the kind of the protectionism that we see in La Bataille kind of exposes the logical limits to its supposed its its supposedly universalist ideas. Um, and these are limits that aren't visible in purely Western contexts. Um, and in contrast, Le, Le Travailleur's stance is kind of both consistent with its universalist claims and also broadened the scope for revolutionary action as well. Uh, you know, it, it's trying to highlight practical ways in which small groups of revolutionaries could bring about meaningful social change. How and why did ex-communard deportees engage in transnational encounters that resulted in advocacy for universal labor solidarity and the quote-unquote politics of friendships? Friendship, excuse me. And what happened to these ideas after the 1883 death of Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels's post-1883 doctrinaire Marxism, and the 1889 founding of the Second International? Yeah, so both Le Travailleur and the deportees um, engaged, I think, in this period in what I would call kind of transnational encounters. Um, so encounters that aren't bounded by the confines of the French Empire. Um, so, for example, on, although they spent most of the time in New Caledonia, um, the deportees obviously had to get to New Caledonia, um, and they saw a variety of different places, uh, along the way, one of them said that it was almost like they'd made a, they'd done a world tour. Um, the, the deportees who escaped, um, met with various foreign radicals, uh, like, uh, the... O'Donovan Rossa, uh, the Irish Fenian. Um, and they also abdicated for the freedom of other political prisoners as well. Um, so when I was thinking about these things, um, I mean, to me, it was proximate to what Leela Gandhi described as the politics of friendship in her book, um, Effective Communities. And so... The point that I wanted to make here is that although 
empire has become a kind of very popular category of analysis um, amongst historians and amongst scholars. Perhaps actually this isn't the most productive lens for looking at revolutionaries' interactions with the world in this period. And as you said, yeah, the book ends in 1885. Um, And by the end of the 1880s, lots of the ideas that I talked about, the more kind of flexible um, or experimental ideas, uh, I think had been replaced. Um, And I don't think that this is due to a single big event, um, but more just a kind of a constellation of the more minor ones that you mentioned, um, which leads to small changes, which when they're all added up, it's actually quite big. Um, But I think that just because the ideas were replaced, um, or they didn't kind of outlast this period, that doesn't mean that they weren't important, um, or that this period wasn't important. You know, revolutionaries continue to kind of operate at the center of political events, um, even after this period. And in fact, I think we could interpret the fact that this kind of flexible intellectual approach fades as a sign of its success, Um, that by 1885, these revolutionaries have kind of managed to reestablish an acceptable position for themselves in French public life um, and also in international revolutionary circles. And I think that this is kind of significant for how we understand both revolution in France um, and also the kind of periodization of modern French history more generally. Um, It shows that 1871 isn't the kind of the decisive break that is often seen to be, Um, that revolutionary ideas maintained a position in French politics for a lot longer than we've previously thought. Um, And that also that they were closer to their more moderate counterparts as well than we have previously thought. So there's actually a lot of continuity between, say, the 1840s and the 1880s. Um, And so maybe it's worth thinking of, if if we want to kind of ascribe uh, or think about a significant break Uh, in French history in the 19th century. Maybe it's worth thinking about 1848 as that rather than 1871. I have one final question for you. What's going on with you next? Are you working on any new projects? Taking a vacation? (laughs) Um, Well, it's very nice to have the book out um, and to not kind of have to worry about that anymore. Um, (laughs) I am starting work on a new project um, that will be looking at comparisons between slavery and wage labour in French philosophy um, between about 1830 and 1917. Um, So lots of people use that comparison or lots of different politicians and journalists and so on. So I want to track the way that that's used across that period and then use that to think about the ways in which French 
philosophers and writers think about things like freedom and equality in the 19th century. Sounds like a promising project. I hope you remember new books in history. <laughs> I definitely will. And I hope that it's promising as well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the book is Revolutionary Thought After the Paris Commune, 1871 to 1885, published uh, earlier this year by uh, Cambridge University Press. I think uh, uh Ms. Nichols for the, the lovely interview. Um, and beha- on behalf of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.